When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. Sleep, once taken for granted, is something parents obsess about. From the endless quest to get children to sleep through the night to worrying about how on earth we parents are going to get through the day on such little sleep. I know I speak for all parents when I say sleep is something we think about a lot. My guest today is so fascinated with sleep that his job centers around it. Professor Guy Leshner is a consultant neurologist and professor of neurology and sleep medicine who's passionate about public education. The author of numerous books, he's presented radio and TV shows about the mysteries of sleep. Guy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so brilliant to be able to talk about sleep and I'd love to just start by understanding a bit more about sleep because I don't actually know do we know why we sleep uh, and what happens to our brains when we sleep we, we certainly have some insight into what happens to our brains during sleep and we're beginning to understand the role of sleep in really regulating every aspect of our physical mental and importantly neurological health we know that sleep has a, a pretty much an impact on every aspect of our health, be that cardiovascular health, the regulation of our blood pressure, uh, whether or not we uh, uh, eat huge amounts of food. Um, but perhaps it, most importantly, it's involved in regulation and housekeeping of the brain in, in very broad terms. So essentially what happens is that are, is there sort of sorting out that goes on while we sleep, that some of the memories are solidified and some of the memories are discarded, the ones that we don't need? We, we certainly know that sleep is really important in memory consolidation. So in the electrical processes that result in moving memories from our short-term memory into our long-term memory, it's important in learning and, and learning in a very broad sense. So not only learning of episodes in our lives, what we term episodic memory, but also in terms of a particular patterns of movement, how, how we walk, how we talk. It's also really important in terms of the housekeeping of the brain. So we know that, for example, in certain stages of sleep, there are channels within the brain that are termed the glymphatic system. And these channels open up in very deep sleep, in a stage of sleep called stage three or, or slow wave sleep. And that these channels are involved in the removal of certain toxins or metabolites from the brain. Essentially, these are the byproducts of being awake and our brains being active. One of those chemicals is actually fundamental to the development of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, which is why there is such a focus today 
on the association between sleep or especially poor sleep and the development of neurological disorders like dementia. And how much sleep should we ideally get? I know that obviously babies and children need far more sleep, which presumably is associated with the fact that their brains are still developing. But as an adult, what's the optimum amount of sleep that we should be getting? So that's a really difficult question to answer because we know that our sleep requirement is a function of our genetics, but it's also a function of the quality of our sleep. So for some people, actually, there is good evidence, particularly if they carry particular genetic variants, that they need relatively less sleep than others. But for the population as a whole, there is really quite good epidemiological evidence, so looking at large-scale populations, that the optimal amount of sleep is somewhere in the region of between seven and eight and a half hours. We know that things like mortality increases if you are sleeping less than, for example, six hours or more than about nine hours. Some of that is probably related to the fact that, you know, many people who are ill anyway with other conditions may be on medications that actually alter their sleep or may have conditions that fundamentally influence their sleep. So it's not entirely clear, but certainly there's very good evidence that if you're sleeping less than on average seven hours a night, for most people that will have negative health consequences. And obviously we're talking to a cohort of people with young children who are probably quite regularly having less than seven hours of sleep a night. Is this, you know, idea that we sleep less when we have young children, um, is it very detrimental to our health or are our bodies kind of programmed um, to, to be able to deal with, you know, the best part of a decade of, of not very good sleep while our children are young? Yeah, first of all, I can entirely sympathise because I think that my sleep has never quite been the same since my kids were born. Um, I, I think that we know that there are a number of mechanisms within the brain that allow us to adapt for sleep loss. So, for example, if somebody's particularly sleep deprived, provided that they haven't got other issues with their sleep, then what tends to happen is that the brain prioritises certain stages of sleep over others. So that stage of sleep that I talked about, that very deep stage of sleep during which this lymphatic system opens up, tends to be prioritised. Uh, and uh, so if people are very sleep restricted, then they potentially spend a, a much larger proportion of their night in that stage of sleep, which is thought to be most important for restoration and for things like tissue healing and growth. So so there are some mechanisms in play. Undoubtedly, there are going to be some health consequences to being sleep deprived. Hopefully, most of those are short term rather than long term. And oh, I mean, can you catch up on sleep if you've had a sort of couple of years of bad sleep or even, let's say, a week of bad sleep? You know what children are like, you know, they'll have a yeah. cold and suddenly they're just not sleeping. How, is it possible then to kind of catch up or, or do we really need a sort of regular amount of sleep per night? So there is this concept of sleep debt. So you can accrue a sleep debt by having your sleep disrupted for a prolonged period of time. There is quite good evidence that if your sleep debt is fairly low, then you can catch up within a couple of days. But actually, we know that, for example, if you take individuals and you sleep deprive them enough, you know, four hours a night, then actually even a weekend of, of catching up with your sleep, of being allowed to sleep for as long as you want, will not repair all the consequences of that sleep debt over two or three nights. And actually in a clinical setting, when we're trying to evaluate people uh, for conditions like narcolepsy, 
let's say, then we typically say that it can take up to two weeks for the consequences of sleep deprivation to be reversed. And it's really important to, to understand that there are really differential consequences. So what I mean by that is that if you are very sleep deprived, there's obviously the sleepiness, the subjective feeling of wanting to go to sleep. But there is also the, the negative consequences on your cognition, on your ability to perform certain cognitive tasks. And we think that there are probably some genetic variants that influence how resistant you are to the effects of sleep deprivation on your feelings of sleepiness, but also on your cognition, and they may not necessarily match. So that there are probably some individuals who, for example, feel after a night or two that they are not sleepy anymore at all, but will still have those cognitive deficits that are part and parcel of sleep deprivation. And how effective are sort of daytime naps if you've had a terrible sort of night's sleep? Are they good or bad? Or do you need to be having a longer period of sleep for it to be truly restorative? I know that sometimes I have, I've had a lunchtime nap and I wake up feeling even more exhausted than when I went to sleep. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is a, a rather nuanced question because I'm often asked this in the context of insomnia. So it, it's important to stress that insomnia is very different from sleep deprivation. Insomnia is the inability to sleep properly when you're given the opportunity, whereas sleep deprivation is is really not having sufficient opportunity to sleep. So for insomnia, we generally tend to recommend people not to nap during the day because it lessens the pressure on the brain to go to sleep at night and can actually engender poor sleep habits. If you're you're sleep-deprived, then actually that is not necessarily applicable. Uh, A short nap so 15 to 20 minutes, will lessen the sleepiness that you have as a result of sleep deprivation. A very long nap, so by long naps I'm talking about you know one and a half to two or even three hours, means that you're actually going into the deeper stages of sleep in, in that nap and you're really then fulfilling the requirements of sleep and may have additional benefits as well. And in cultures, for example, that have siestas, there's quite good evidence that a, a, a lunchtime nap has important impact on cognition, but also on wider health issues like lowering your blood pressure. So if you are very sleep deprived, um, then actually having a nap during the day is is going to be rather useful. What, what you describe about waking up feeling even more tired after a, a, a daytime nap is often as a consequence of getting your timings a little bit wrong. Because if you go into the deeper stages of sleep and you try and wake up out of the deeper stages of sleep, people often experience something called sleep inertia or sleep drunkenness at its extreme. You know, that feeling of profound groggy headedness of not being able to get going again after that daytime nap. And what is the optimum time to sleep for a sort of lunchtime nap, a daytime nap? So we think that most people will tend to go into the deeper stages of sleep within about 20 to 30 minutes of sleep onset, which is why that if you're going to have a short nap, we tend to say limit it to 15 or 20 minutes to avoid waking up in that deep stage of sleep. And for most people, that first stage of of very deep sleep tends to be over by about 90 minutes or so. So either 15 minutes or 90 minutes, basically. Yeah, or longer. I mean, obviously, there are huge differences between individuals, and it to some extent depends quite how bad the rest of your sleep is. But as a general rule, that's actually quite sensible. And I speak to a lot of parents who are absolutely exhausted, but still find it very difficult to go to sleep. I think Mm. often as a new parent, there's suddenly so much to make you anxious. Your mind is spinning. I definitely had this. 
is there such thing as sort of overtiredness that will prevent you from getting to sleep? We know that many people have a trait called sleep reactivity. So this is something that many people will sympathise with, that, for example, issues in their environment will often impact on their sleep. So the typical picture of somebody in their youth is, you know, when they have exams or when they have a job interview or something like that, they know they're going to sleep rather poorly beforehand. Uh, And that trait, that sleep reactivity is often associated with insomnia, you know, usually later on in life. Um, And in insomnia, what tends to happen is that people enter into what's termed a hyperarousal state or a hypervigilant state, that feeling of being on high alert, which, of course, being a new parent is very good at engendering. You know, you're on high alert anyway because you're constantly worried about your baby. You know, you're constantly worried about whether or not they're too hot, they're too cold, they're sleeping, they're hungry, they're, you know, about to soil their nappy and you're going to have to get up to, to, to change it. So if you have that sleep reactivity trait in the background, then you're much more likely to enter into this pattern of, you know, essentially what you're describing is insomnia in the context of this hypervigilant state. And that hypervigilant state extends both from the psychological, so feeling on high alert psychologically. But we know that with significant sleep deprivation, there are hormonal changes that occur that fuel the insomnia. So levels of adrenaline, for example, go up. And adrenaline is the hormone that mediates that flight, fright or fight response. And and so essentially what you're describing is this sensation that a lot of people uh, experience, which is feeling extremely tired, but wired as well at the same time. So that jitteriness, that high alert feeling that people often describe. In terms of if you're struggling then to get sleep as a new parent, yeah. is there anything you can do if you're feeling tired but wired? Yeah. Is there anything you can do to, to make sleep come a little bit more easily? Yeah, so I think that we now know that for individuals with this tendency, and I think at its extreme, you know, in the absence of everything else going on, we would call this chronic insomnia. Uh, we know that there are obviously medications that can help, but really over the last 20 years or so, so we've moved very much away from medications because they have adverse effects, so they can make you feel very groggy, they can give you a hangover effect. They also have the potential for dependency, both psychological and, in some cases, physical dependency, and a, a phenomenon called habituation, whereby people require ever-increasing drugs or doses of drugs in order to achieve the same effect. The the research of the last 20 or so years really points towards one particular technique, which is termed cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, as being the most effective long-term treatment in this kind of scenario. And cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is essentially a behavioral protocol to try and reprogram your brain to associate bed with sleep rather than bed with lying awake. Some parts of it are related to relaxation strategies. Other parts are related to essentially reconditioning your brain to associate your bed, the sleeping environment, with getting off to sleep rather than struggling to get off to sleep. And there are other aspects of it as well that all aim to reduce that hypervigilant, that hyperarousal state that you're describing. Does distraction work? I always find listening to something on a sort of sleep timer when my mind is whirring is is a sort of quite effective way of getting sleep. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that is part and parcel of the CBTI protocol. Uh, Essentially, uh, for many individuals, 
there is significant anxiety associated with sleep. So there's the anxiety of wondering, first of all, am I going to get to sleep tonight? Or, or is it going to be a horrible night? There's the anxiety of thinking, how on earth am I going to be able to cope with looking after my child tomorrow? Or if you're working, being able to get on with a job or looking after the other kids tomorrow if I feel like rubbish uh, the following day. So it's the act of trying to go to sleep that sometimes increases anxiety. And those distraction techniques uh, will often help because then you're not focused on going to sleep. Your mind is is taken elsewhere. Interestingly, a lot of people with insomnia will say, well, look, you know, when I'm sitting on the sofa and I'm watching TV, I'll often doze off on the sofa. But as soon as I get into bed and I don't have any distractions, I will lie awake, my brain will start whirring, my, my head will start buzzing, and I will be simply unable to sleep. And that's a very good illustration of that phenomenon. And when we do feel like rubbish, when we're sleep deprived, is there anything that can make us feel better? Um, because obviously, as, as new parents, we will be sleep deprived. I remember there were days when I literally felt like I didn't sleep. And I think, how am I going to function? But actually, I kind of functioned just about. Yeah. And that sort of anxiety I had about not being able to function was actually just making life harder when it didn't really need to be. But is there anything when we've had one of those terrible nights sleep that will just help us get through the day? I mean, caffeine? <laughs> or is that well, a bad thing? Well, I, I think caffeine certainly provides a temporary stimulant effect. It obviously has its downsides. And what a lot of people don't appreciate is how long caffeine lasts in your system. So the half-life of caffeine is fairly long. If you drink enough of it, even if you try and limit it to earlier on in the day, there will still be some caffeine circulating in your system. So I think the key thing is to use caffeine judiciously. Um, and then the rest of it is rather boring. It's things like exercise. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fresh air, light in particular, is very good at having an alerting response. So, you know, sometimes that in the UK can be rather difficult, especially in the depths of winter. But exposing yourself to external light can be rather helpful as well. And those those lights that people have that sort of simulate bright daylight when it is a sort of gloomy day in England, yeah. are those helpful to have by your desk, for example? Well, well, I think there is certainly a great deal of evidence that they help, for example, if you've got what's termed a circadian rhythm disorder. So if, for example, you're one of those individuals whose body clock is, is shifted, then we will, in clinical practice, use these bright lights. And they do simulate natural sunlight rather well and and can be useful in terms of exerting a stimulating effect. I think once again, you know, as with things like caffeine, 
it's the timing that is also important. So what you don't want to be doing is you don't want to be exposing yourself to these light boxes late on in the evening, because what that tends to do is it tends to shift your internal body clock back. So it makes your brain want to go to sleep later than you otherwise would and wake up later than you otherwise would, which is a really very bad thing if your baby is going to bed at 8 p.m. and waking up rather early because essentially then what you're successfully doing is sleep depriving yourself even more. Yeah. And so if you were wanting to aim to get to bed at, say, 9, 30, 10, when would you stop drinking caffeine and when uh, it, not not too much caffeine, obviously? Yeah. Yeah. And, and when would you sort of start limiting that exposure to bright lights? What sort of time? So we generally tend to recommend that people don't drink any caffeine after lunch, particularly if they've had a lot. Um, and it, with regard to light exposure, probably, you know, you should stop at about 4 or 5 p.m. So coming on to sleep for our children, <laughs> which mm. is something that, you know, we absolutely obsess about. I mean, presumably sleep is absolutely fundamental for babies. I mean, they sleep, what, 18 hours a day when they're first born or even yes. more than that. Yeah, more than that, yeah, even. Um, yeah, we, we know that there are a number of changes that occur through life and that a newborn baby will, as you say, spend about two thirds or more of their day asleep. Um, interestingly, the stages of sleep also change dramatically. So about half of all sleep in babies is REM sleep, what we term what we know as dreaming sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. Whereas in, you know, for example, adults, um, I'm not going to say you're in my age, because well, that's making assumptions my age, uh, probably spend somewhere in the region of about 15 to 20% of their time in, in REM sleep. Um, so, so there are changes both in terms of duration and also in terms of sleep architecture. Well, if you look at, for example, kids who have sleep disorders, so conditions like obstructive sleep apnea or other uh, conditions that disrupt sleep or individuals who are very sleep deprived because they have behavioral sleep issues, then, then we see a number of different findings. And most of those in, in, in children relate to behavior. And I don't think it takes a, a sleep specialist to tell parents that if your kids are very sleep deprived, there will be changes in behavior. But at their extremes, I know that my pediatric colleagues um, will sometimes see kids who have been diagnosed or provisionally diagnosed with conditions like ADHD, who actually have a sleep disorder underlying them. And when their sleep disorder is treated, their, their ADHD, in, uh, ADHD in inverted commas improves as well. Uh, and it's very clear that um, you know sleep-restricted kids and teenagers will, for example, perform less well at school. Uh, and we see that particularly in, in teenagers, particularly those teenagers who are going to bed very late and you know would like to wake up very late but don't because they have to get up for school. So so there are some sort of broad implications for optimising nighttime sleep in children. Do you think you can learn or be taught to sleep well? Well, sleep is a learned pattern of behaviour, and I think that that learning of good sleep is really the basis for a huge industry of you know, baby sleep experts who go to people's houses and charge them large amounts of money to teach their babies to sleep. You know, of course, there is a, a whole issue surrounding the behaviours that children learn with regard to sleep. But, you know, one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, we all have genetic variants or other aspects of our 
physical and mental health that influence our sleep and those will influence the sleep of children as well particularly slightly older children but yes absolutely it's a it's a behavior that can be learned and it, i suppose too you know if you can get into a sort of good routine because sleep you know people sleep tends to thrive with routine going to bed at a similar time every night is quite important isn't it for the yeah a- absolutely you know the we t- I talked a little bit about those associations between bed and sleep that influence people with insomnia. For for children, that's also really important. The fact that they know that their sleeping environment is a place of relaxation, of calmness, of sleep, whereby that if they exhibit certain behaviours, that they're not going to be rewarded for those behaviours. So we're now talking about younger children. Um, because, you know, children learn by reward, and, and to some degree punishment. Now, punishment in the sleep context doesn't mean, you know, uh, physical punishment, but, but um, you, know, the, you know, certainly not giving certain behaviours attention as a, as, a, as a punishment is something that's really important. And my paediatric colleagues will be rather um, rigid about the advice that they give. Now, I, I think any parent will have heard of things like controlled crying and things like that. And there are a range of ways in which those can be put in place so that actually children are, are, are calmed, they're soothed, they're, they're, but they're also rewarded for sleeping well. Uh, and they're not rewarded for, you know, getting up, throwing tantrums, uh, crying in the middle of the night. It's about making sure that they that everything that you as a parent do engenders that association between bed and, and sleeping well, sleeping through the night. Now, it's easier said than done. And, you know, yet despite the fact that I know the theory, I'm not sure that I put it in practice with my children particularly well. But at least having knowledge of the kinds of things that you should be doing might at least inform you. And that consistency, I suppose, is really important. And I mean, I remember reading something and they said, you know, when your child wakes up in the middle of the night, just don't engage with them, which Mm. people interpreted as being really cruel. How could you not look at your child and maintain eye contact with your child? But essentially that for them is stimulation and stimulation is the last thing they need when they're trying to go to sleep. And, and and indeed, even an inconsistent response can sometimes be rewarding. So if you do that, you know, 50% of the time, but the other 50% of the time you don't engage with them, then they will still learn that actually if they get up in the middle of the night and start screaming, there's a pretty good chance that you will come in and you'll start engaging with them and playing with them. Now, obviously, there's a balance to be had because as a parent, you don't you know, personally, I don't feel terribly comfortable. And, and now I'm talking as a parent rather than talking as a, a, a as a sleep specialist. I don't feel particularly comfortable with letting my child scream for hours and hours through the night. Um, but, you know, get the, there's a difference between going in and um, making sure that they're safe and making sure that they know that you're there uh, from actually kind of properly engaging with them and picking them up and, you know, talking to them, et cetera, et cetera. And reading a story to them. Yes. Or let them get in your bed. Indeed. Indeed. That is the, the death knell for your sleep. Yes. Yes. Um, so the other death knell is if your child has nightmares, um, mm. which seems to be relatively common. Uh, is it? Or is that just my perception? Yeah, it's very common. Uh, I think there are two issues with regard to nightmares. So what um, a lot of people refer to as nightmares are actually something called sleep terrors. Um, and, and sleep terrors are a phenomenon whereby children 
and by the way, this is not uncommon, it affects about 5% of kids, will at certain stages in their development, suddenly in the middle of the night, get up, they'll look extremely distressed, they'll be screaming and shouting, they'll be engaging uh, with you. Uh, And then after a little while, they'll go back to sleep, and they won't remember any of that. Uh, Essentially, what this represents is a, a... a form of, of sleepwalking, a condition called a non-REM parasomnia. And actually for them, they don't recall it. It doesn't do any damage. It's actually much more traumatic for the parent than it is for the child because the child wakes up in the morning is told, oh, you did this and this and has no recollection of it whatsoever. So, so these kinds of behaviours arise from very deep sleep, from those deepest stages of what we term non-REM sleep. Nightmares are you know, what we experience also in, in, in adulthood. These are unpleasant dreams of a narrative structure from which we wake and we recall them. And they are a, a normal part of growing up. Uh, they're a normal part of learning. They're a normal part of understanding the world. Uh, we think that actually dreams are important in a number of ways. They're important in terms of understanding our environment, understanding the world that we live in, but they're also important in emotional processing. And so it's not surprising that children, as they grow up, will have some distressing dreams whereby the emotional content of those dreams is sufficient to cause them to to fully wake up. They don't in and of themselves necessarily represent anything wrong with that child, unless they're very thematic, unless they're related to some sort of traumatic experience, in which case we would refer to that as PTSD-associated nightmares. Um, And, you know, really it is about reassurance and about trying to optimise other aspects of sleep to try and make sure that their sleep is as good quality as possible. Because, I mean, what you don't want is a child that's frightened of going to sleep because they are anticipating these um, really unpleasant and nightmares. Yeah. In terms of talk, is it important to get your child to talk about them? And, you know, very often it's the monster under the bed. It's something that is absolutely yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. How important is it to reassure them that's not going to happen? Or do we need to acknowledge that what they're dreaming about is scary and they're not being silly to find it scary? Yeah. I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk to because the, the, the issue... The issue that I have is that I see predominantly adults rather than children. I know that for um, my pediatric colleagues, what they often say is it's about it's about reassurance. It's about making them feel calm. You know, I think by and large, kids are not going to uh, be easily dismissed. Um, and I think certainly acknowledging the fact that these are scary, but also acknowledging the fact that these are not um, real phenomena is important the most important thing is that for the vast majority of children they grow out of these you know things settle with time and in the heat of the moment it's very easy to think oh my god this is what my life is going to be like for the next 15 years because my kid is going to have these dreams for the next 15 years and I'm going to be in a terrible pickle but actually as with all things in parenthood for the vast majority of individuals this will pass too and does CBT work for children or people that are having sort of nightmares and night terrors? Yeah, C- CBT for insomnia certainly works. It's about causing uh, a reduction in that hypervigilant state. And the reason why we think that hypervigilance also impacts on nightmares is because if you are hypervigilant and it disrupts the quality of your sleep, it makes it much more likely that you're going to be in a slightly... Um, 
aroused or vigilant state during dreaming as well. So you're much more likely to wake up in these situations. And, uh, you know, other things that I know that my paediatric colleagues often recommend is listening to mindfulness-based apps, for example, with their children in order to reduce that level of hyperarousal to 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 induce that feeling of calmness, of soothing, of reassurance at night. And they will often point to particular apps to be used at night or in the evening alongside uh, their parents to try and facilitate that. Yeah, that makes sense. And finally, sleepwalking, which I know mm. is quite uh, common. Um, what should you do with a sleepwalking child? Should you yeah. wake them up or just take them back to bed? Well, there is this old wives' tale that it's dangerous to wake up a, a sleepwalking person. And I think that that comes from a few cases in adulthood of people who have extreme sleepwalking, who as a result of being woken up and being quite confused will have a violent response. Actually, in children, that's not really a major concern at all. And all you really do by waking up a uh, a sleepwalking child is you end up having a awake but confused child on your hands. So actually guiding them back to bed and soothing them back to sleep is perhaps the most useful thing that you can do. It's also, you know, once again, I, I stress the fact that um, as with many things in childhood, it often passes. So we know that about 20% of kids will sleepwalk on more than one occasion. And about 40% of kids will sleepwalk at least once. Actually, that persisting into adulthood is pretty rare. Only about 1% or 2% of adults sleepwalk. So for the vast majority of individuals, there will be a phase during which they sleepwalk or have these night terrors, and then they will settle down on their own, usually without any major uh, intervention at all. Well, apart from from the people that I read about in your book, the the lady who would go and sleepwalk and drive her car around while she was asleep. Yes, well, it keeps me in work, the fact that it continues to persist in a few individuals. But these are the minority, the the vast minority. Yeah, and and that's why they make such extraordinary stories, is that Mm. you're... is so unusual. Uh, Guy, thank you so much. Um, it's been so fascinating talking to you. I know this has been massively helpful for, for lots of people listening. Um, Guy's books, uh, The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience and the Secret World of Sleep is brilliant. I uh, I read it and was absolutely fascinated. Um, it was quite a lot of self-diagnosis. Um, and his newest book, The Man Who Tasted Words, Inside the Strange and Startling World of Our Senses is out now. Um, Marina, can I just tell you a quick anecdote? Yeah. So my 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 twelve year old daughter at the time read that book, and she came down from reading it and said, "Oh, uh, Dad, I think I've got restless leg syndrome, insomnia, narcolepsy, and Klein-Levin syndrome." So so you're not alone in self diagnosing. <laughs> I was reading this thinking, "It's me. I have all these issues." <laughs> I shall tell my daughter. <laughs> Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time today, Guy. And thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you found this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, Guy and me, thanks for listening and goodbye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.